0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everybody, I'm so glad you're here. I have to tell you guys something. I have been chatting with someone longer than our, our actual podcast is going to be because I've so enjoyed talking to the person you're about to hear. Let me tell you about Dr. Tian Dayton. This is someone I've known for a number of years as a professional and really is, uh, just to say it, one of the most skilled and engaging psychodramatists, an educator. Her experience in psychodrama is fantastic, amazing. And if you don't know about psychodrama, we'll probably talk a little bit about that. But let me tell you about Dr. Dayton. Dr. Dayton is a senior fellow at The Meadows. She's author of 15 books, including The Soulful Journey of Recovery, The ACOA Trauma Syndrome, Emotional Sobriety, Trauma and Addiction, and so many more. She's developed an approach for incorporating experiential work into treatment programs and group work. And this is called relationship trauma repair or R T R. Tian Dayton has a master's in educational psychology and a PhD in clinical psychology and is a board certified member a trainer in psychodrama, sociomet I don't know how to say that, sociometry and group psychotherapy. Welcome, Doctor Dayton.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Can we start by telling me how to pronounce that word? Is it
1: Sociometry?
0: And tell us what it means, just since I don't know.
1: It's really the science. Psychodrama is a role-playing method. And Moreno, who developed psychodrama, has a triadic system, psychodrama, sociometry, and group psychotherapy. He's also the father of group psychotherapy. So sociometry is just a word for group dynamics. And, And you have to understand that when he developed it, none of that existed. So he named it all.
0: And I, I know that you you're, uh, you write a lot. You have books that you're always putting out and very active in the field. You have something new that you've been writing about. I think it's called, if I may get this right, the soulful journey of recovery. And knowing you a little bit, I don't think you pick those words idly. So soulful is probably there for a reason. Why don't we start there? What made you write a soulful journey of recovery?
1: In all honesty, here it is. Since we've been talking so much, Rob, I'm now uh, open to saying things I wouldn't normally say on, a, on an interview, but my college roommate had a little story about when she was a little girl, and she had so much trouble learning how to pull her knee socks up.
0: Pull up her socks, okay.
1: And when she finally learned how to grab one on each side and yank them up, she wanted to write a book about it so that other children... Would have less trouble learning how to pull up their knee socks, and this is my "Pull Up the Knee Socks" book. It's um, uh, it's a best of my books. It's all of the journey, chapter by chapter. I've got probably a whole book written on each chapter in this book.
0: Who would who would be most helped by reading "Soulful" the Soulful Journey of Recovery?
1: Kids from adverse childhood experiences, adult children of alcoholics, you know, addicts too were. Oftentimes, uh, grew up with addiction or adverse childhood experiences. So it's anyone who has grown up with a situation that uh, was traumatic, and they want to find their way out of it.
0: It's interesting because we're living in a time, Doctor Dayton, where we, be, we I think the culture, as a large, is is. I want. I hate to say finally, but finally, beginning to look at trauma. I. I the, we have a test now called the uh, ACE. Is that it? The uh, adverse childhood experiences. And, and you mentioned it in your, in your subtitle, and I was just hearing in California that they're going to ask all physicians to give it to their clients so that anyone who comes in with depression or anxiety or any of those kind of emotional things to, a, to your general practitioner will be given an ACE test. And I thought, wow, that means that we're really going to be looking at trauma as a contributor to the problems we have in day-to-day life. I'm wondering how you, how you think about this long journey that we've been on to get to this point.
1: Well, the ACEs, what you're talking about, the ACE inventory, it started out by Kaiser Permanente and the CDC. They got together, Center for Disease and and, uh, Kaiser Permanente, and identified because one of the doctors there had a weight loss program, he found that he was very successful in helping people to lose weight, but they dropped out of the program. And when he questioned them, almost to a person, they'd been sexually abused, or had average childhood experiences. So that got him thinking, and then the CDC got interested. So what they were really looking at at Kaiser Permanente is what increases doctor's visits. And they did not expect to find that what increases doctor's visits are traumatic experiences. And one of the top traumas that kept popping up over and over again was growing up with parents who were addicted.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And here it is, 2020. These this is not new information to you or me, Doctor Doctor Dayton.
1: No, you you bet. It's not new information to us, but it's new information out there. It's just like the opioid crisis. I'm sure you have the same reaction I do. Is finally everybody is realizing what we have been saying for 10, 15 years in our field is that this is a this is a medical problem. These are And no one quite believed that there were all these articles. Why in small towns in America is there this increase in opioid use? Well, there, there was a very easy explanation that we were aware of in our field, but nobody else could believe it could really be true that doctors would do this.
0: It also seems unlikely that in 2020 that people would be unaware that early childhood trauma or early childhood averse experiences can lead to problems in adult life. There still seems to be a, a stigma in our culture that well you should have worked through that. you know, I, I'll give you an example. I had a patient not that long ago at our treatment program. he said I had you know he had an alcoholic dad and he had his family grew up in ter- terrible poverty, and his mother was also drinking heavily and he just this is a kid who never had a chance, you know. And he said when he left his home at 16, this is what he told me in treatment at 40. He said, I decided that I wasn't going to let any of that affect me, that I was going to move ahead and have a good life and not let any of those, not let my mom's beatings or the violence or the alcohol, none of it is going to affect me. I'm going to have a good life. And here he is sitting here in treatment, 40 years old. You know, he betrayed his wife. He became an alcoholic. He wasn't able to do the thing he said he was going to do.
1: He was able to do it in part. I mean, he was able to get enough life going for himself. See, this is this is the core of why I write books. I mean, this actually, if I had a, a heart song, it would be dancing just around what you're talking about, is that um, as ACOAs, as people of adverse childhood experiences, we can often develop a good life, but we can't sustain it without help. We can get there. We can get to where this guy, we can find the partner, we can give birth to some children, we can perhaps get a job. It's not this group of people who can't function. It's this group of people who function to a point and then it goes to all hell breaks loose, right?
0: And often and most often in the area of relationships, intimacy, sexuality, you know, um, I think of Alice Miller, this uh, which guys this is a guru in our field who's hard to read but worth reading. She was talking about early childhood trauma and she said something like, the intellect may remain intact and someone might actually achieve really really a great deal, but not so much the world of their emotions where they may struggle all their lives. And I think of highly successful people like um, calling out names like a Bill Clinton. You know, here we have an extraordinarily brilliant, smart, you know, whatever you think of his politics, but so broken inside, you know, so broken inside. And without that, a relationship attachment piece really unable to flourish despite external success
1: were flourishing like crazy, helping the world. He was he was really, in many ways, a very good president. And did, uh, it, I mean, it's hard to accomplish more than becoming the president of the United States, but not being able to sustain it.
0: Well, it, it, when that isn't even enough for you and you have to be seeking the attention of other young women, I mean, like, don't you have enough attention as the president of the United States? That's the issue. It's emotional.
1: It's emotional. And somebody is... Is flipping their dress around and and saying, I, "I'll give you something that you know that it just you know it is in that desire to, I think, feel another human being's warmth, to feel affirmed on a very basic level." And when you talk about attachment, that you know, I have grandchildren now, so I'm watching it happen all over again. But the holding, the holding, the caring, the constant that a parent owes the child, and the uh the skin to skin the being there when they when they cry to soothe those little pains
0: and cheer for every poop that comes out
1: yeah that's exactly right their big accomplishment and shame them for it right it's all right there and if it gets perverted at that level it's tough to correct and you know honestly i think one having been married for 45 years i think one of the Best places to correct that is in another intimate relationship. But that's, of course, where it explodes because those feelings. I know it's been a long time since I was first uh, married, right? But early on in that relation, in my relationship, I think the deep feeling of attachment made my husband and I each go in different directions. It brought up anger in him and tears in me. And I would say the first year of our being together. He got angry and I cried, and I think it was a that was part of our our attaching, allowing ourselves to attach. And it sounds screwy.
0: No, no, no. But it was it does not to you. No, well because I remember. So now I'm thinking of uh, other people's words are going to be in my mind today. I have Marianne Williamson, who said, "Love brings up everything unlike itself." And when we run into the potential of getting our needs met, really getting them met, we also run into all of our fears that they may never be met.
1: Yep. And the, this path of crying tears, getting angry, all, all of all of that in our innocence at the time. We didn't know what was going on. But it was so frightening to feel so safe, you know. I mean, at some deep level I think we knew we were there for each other. But what we had to pass through in order to let that happen was many years of this kind of thing.
0: So, you're you're speaking to couples now and coupleship, and I would imagine part of what you're saying is you really have to see the rough times as choppy waters when there's much deeper flow underneath that's connecting you.
1: That's a perfect way to put it. I just, you know what, I I was talking with my husband this morning. I just thought, you know, if I want to write, and as we talked about earlier, Rob, I want to write about something, Dr. Weiss, I want to write about something different every minute. But this morning's desire was, you know, I want to tell couples. Not to worry about years of, of unrest. Because it's it's to be expected. You can't be in a lifelong relationship and have it be smooth. And you can't have one person who can meet all your needs. It's a it's a childhood fantasy. Even your parents can't do it. But when we had parents who hurt us deeply, who who rejected us deeply, then that fantasy doesn't become lived through and made mature and real we still think that uh, that there'll be that person out there who can be the good parent and we impose that on our love relationships So it, that's a that's a recipe for
0: disaster. You know it's funny Dr. Dayton because I think can I just I'll just call you Tion because that's what I do and I love your name anyway yeah. so you know I think of oh gosh so much about this We're really talking about all of the challenges that people have to be able to acknowledge that trauma might have affected them. And you've written a, an extraordinary summation of your work in this book, *Social Soulful Journey of Recovery*, to try to touch all the bases for the various people who are coming and looking at trauma and healing from a variety of places that they have been. But we're talking about a couple of things. One of the things that keeps people from looking at their issues is they want to believe that the past that they can get they can get past the past. They can pull themselves up by the bootstraps, and even if it was bad, they're going to get ahead. And they can so there's a sense of individualism, and you know, getting if you're if you're healthy enough to be able to do that. But then there's also, I think, and I'm talking about the the challenges in looking at trauma. There's also the, well, my parents were good people, and they loved me, and they meant well, and I don't want to put them down or hurt them. And I wondered if you could speak to that part, because that's also a really tough part for us to have to look at with folks.
1: Curiously, psychodrama comes to mind, because when I work with people on this kind of issue that you've uh, pointed to so well, I say, look, choose people to play your parents,
0: in in roles. So psychodrama is like acting kind of.
1: Exactly. Like acting out roles. So then I'll say, let's have them sit here now. And we're not going to hurt that relationship you have with them today. We're going to not challenge what's working. The part we're going to work with is the part that didn't work that happened with you as a child, maybe before that parent sobered up, maybe when that parent was under a ton of stress. So choose someone to play that parent. And what I try to do is in a laparoscopic way, work with the parent the parent who hurt you as a child and not the parent, the many other roles that are working with that parent. So I break it out into two roles because what you are talking about really does keep people from being able to acknowledge the pain. They're scared if they look at the relationship, any part of the relationship, they'll lose the whole relationship and that again goes back to that child mind which it's, it's a, immature in a sense because much mat- part of maturity is being able to not like certain parts of someone and love certain parts of someone
0: you can abstract more you can see more you can choose but when you're little you just have to take the whole thing as it is kind of thing
1: yeah 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 and you have to depend on them for everything
0: well we don't children aren't able to psychologically perceive their parents as failing i mean no 4 year old Looks up and says, Oh, well, I get it why they're being so mean to me. Dad is drinking and mom is, you know, compulsively eat. I mean, little babies don't say that. Little babies say, What's wrong with me that I'm not getting, you know, and that is the basis for shame and low self esteem and all the issues that we deal with. So, what's hard, I think, to explain to folks, the folks who really end up with profound addictions and really meaningful emotional challenges related to relationship is helping them understand that it does come from the past because sometimes people end up just hating themselves and thinking, well, I'm just a loser or no one will ever love me or I can't work this out. Or, you know, I see, you know, we talked about my doing a weekly online group and I have to say Tian, 50% of those people who come to my group on in the rooms are women. And those women are saying things to me like, I quote, I'm 40 years old and I've had so many crappy relationships with so many crappy men that I just don't think I'm gonna date or have sex again ever. And they mean it. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you're 40 years old and you're missing out on everything, but you're too scared that you're gonna repeat your childhood over and over again. And that's a really tough dilemma, I think.
1: You know, it's interesting when you say that. I hear a lot of, I keep picking unavailable people, you know, and that's where I think at, at a certain point, we have to put the focus on becoming an available person. I mean, and seeing what where we shut down, where we reject, where we push away, where we can't embrace ourselves. And so we see the world as unavailable when we became unavailable for some very good reasons. We became for some very good reasons. And it's very painful to go back and revisit that.
0: Are you saying that some people walk around kind of uh, with a sense, stance of, I will reject you before you can reject me?
1: Something like that, something like that. Seeing everybody else as, as uh, unavailable. I think we have to know that that we have learned to not we have learned to defend those places that attach
0: hey there i sure hope you're enjoying this sex love and addiction podcast before we continue i'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction porn addiction or co-occurring drug problems seeking integrity can help For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. You know, Dr. Dayton, I, I say this as often as I can when I do this show. I understand, as you probably do, there are a lot of people listening who they're never going to necessarily go to therapy, they may not necessarily ever go to a 12-step program, they might pick up a book like yours and look for healing and growth. How do you encourage people to grow if they're not necessarily, if they don't have the resources or the time to enter that long therapy journey?
1: Well, that's that's part of why I did this book, because I, I do exercises after almost all of the chapters. And I do suggest, use the book, Go to a 12-step Program. They're free. You don't have to make a commitment. But, but it gives you a sense of hearing other people's stories. So you're not just in your own head. But that's where I wanted people to start. Pick up the book, do the exercises, go to a 12-step program and see what percolates for you or start your own, um, your own support group. Gather a few friends, do the exercises together. I think that, you know, as a therapist, I think 52% of the work is done when people walk in my door.
0: You mean by they're having committed to just say, I need help, and I'm going to go, uh-huh. Right
1: exactly. They plowed through one of the biggest blocks, which is to say, I could use a little help. Mm. So people can get a lot of help through, through reading, through 12-step, through talking online, huge amounts. Going to something like your group, I mean... What a place to start To do this kind of uh, soulful journey of recovery book, go to your group, which is open to people, go to a 12-step program. That's a huge amount of life-altering help if people want to raise them.
0: So you can point to something, and I want to point it out, because you've done this a couple of times now. You've talked about the book, and then you talked about con- or, or actually more than the book. You talk about connecting with these feelings, these thoughts, these, having a better wraparound in your head about what might have happened to you. But then you talk about, in every case, connecting with other people, going to a group, starting a group. What, what is that part about for you? And why can't I sit home alone and read your book and do my exercises and grow? Why do I have to go sit with a bunch of people I don't know? I'm being devil's advocate here. I don't want to go to those groups. I don't want to sit around a bunch of people I don't know and talk, listen to their problems. Why can't I do that kind of stuff?
1: Isolation is, is, uh, is isolation. And I'll talk about it with my own marriage. I realized early on, my husband and I were in our mid-20s when we got together, early 20s, and um, he pulled on parts of me that I thought were uh, finished. By that, I mean, I didn't even know they were there. They had been numb for such a long time. And I, I was only 23, but say they'd been numb for a good 10 years. But being with him and being pulled towards him through the strong love and attachment I was feeling yanked on them in a way that not being with somebody would have never yanked on them. And twelve step rooms have a way of doing that. As you sit and listen to people, it pulls on parts of you that are numb. Our main defense with trauma is to shut down, withdraw, and avoid. Or dissociate. That's what trauma gets us to do is withdraw or rage. That's probably a more I think that's a better one, actually. I think it's more
0: shut down and rage.
1: Yeah. Collapse and rage, right? But I think if you go into some kind of a group, it it gets that, that stuff moving again. And you start to and the beauty of twelve step is you don't have to open your mouth. You can just feel all those feelings and survive sitting there feeling them. Go home and then come and do it again in a few days. It's it's uh just being in a room where people are feeling and when I started going to Al Anon, I remember I was happy to sit there for a year and discover that I didn't clear the room when I opened my mouth and shared. If I opened my mouth and shared, I thought I was going to clear the room because that was my experience as a kid. I thought if I told the truth, people would just leave the room. And so for the first year of al it was enough for me to just share and not have people leave the room. I didn't need to have anything more happen.
0: It's fascinating to me that you are talking about this in this way, because in modern life, in our apartments and our cars and our businesses and our homes, we really miss out on community. And when you look back in our history as people, we always lived in and were supported by large communities. And one of the, I think, major challenges of the world we live in now, especially the digital world, is it's dividing us into smaller and smaller and smaller segments without that sense of deep, meaningful connection. And we can survive all of that being chopped up into little pieces, provided we have deep, meaningful connection. And that part seems to have escaped so many people in this world of I'm just going to figure it out on my own and succeed, or whatever that means.
1: You've said it perfectly. I mean, I repeat it, but I couldn't say it any better. I I think this is the biggest challenge facing us today: is our lack of community. But I love that you're hopeful. I I love that you say we can survive all that if we make it our business to find community in that case the technology is a boon if we use it to isolate it's a it's the opposite
0: it is, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of parents will say, oh, my kid's gaming, he's sitting in there alone in his room. No, he's actually communicating and socializing with five or 10 people and they're going on a journey and an adventure together.
1: Now, somebody just the other day said he was going to take his, his phone away from his son and his son was on his own in the afternoon. His mother had left many years before. He has a successful son. This kid has friends. He's got a job. He gets good grades. He's an athlete. I said, don't take this phone away from him. Don't, don't buy some, something that this phone is bad because he's connecting with his family of friends, and that's feeling this afternoon. Uh, think long and hard before you take it away.
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, I talk to parents a lot and think about this, Dr. Dayton. What do they see? Your kid comes home in the afternoon, they're free. So they're, and there's nobody around. So they're on the phone, they're on their devices all evening. But when they go to school, they're not on their devices. They're talking to their friends. I've taught at schools, you know, it's just adolescents at home don't want to be home anyway. They want to be with their friends. So parents think, oh my God, they're all alone on these devices. No, they're constantly connecting with their friends. Didn't your dad say, of course, Dr. Dayton, this is when they used to charge, but my dad used to say, could you get off that phone? It's costing us so much money for you to sit on and talk to your friends when I wasn't at school. As I recall, I was on the phone with my friends all the time. So I think there is this misperception, yes, that there's absolute isolation in the digital world. And it's really a different form of connection that perhaps some older folks are not as uh, supportive of or don't understand as well.
1: I'm with you on that. You know, after 9-11, we're New Yorkers. So our, our daughter was working. She saw those planes go into the building, both of them, through the window of her workplace. Her dad was working also midtown. And they, by, by a series of Friends found each other, you know, because all of the internets were down. And walked up to town, right? They they were walking from for in the forties or thirties to um, eighty six where we are. And over the next few days, I mean, I I learned more about trauma at nine eleven than preceding. But Marina was on the phone with her friends uh, nonstop, and. I wondered why they were doing so well, given that they a, a, another friend was right next to the building that went down. But kids did not seem to be as traumatized by the experience as I thought they would be. And I think it's because, especially they're girls, and girls just connect like crazy. And um, they were on the phone. Uh, she, we had two lines then. She'd sometimes have a friend on each line. And they were just cha 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 covers up around their you know, faces, crying, talking, shouting, getting upset, getting, you know, tea, getting crackers, getting upset, but, but nonstop connecting for the next couple of days. It was amazing to watch and to watch what that did for them. They were so, um, they weren't therapists. They hadn't read any books on trauma, but they just, connected they didn't isolate and they chatted 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 and they cried 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 together and they came through something that could have been much more traumatizing had they not been so inclined to to pull together
0: you know i think i often talk to the patients that i work with about the story of elizabeth smart you know she was abducted when she was a young child i'm sure everyone's pretty much heard her name after it was all over i think she was abducted for five or six years I heard an interview with her a number of years later, and the question was asked, did you go to extensive therapy? You must have. This was horrible for you. You, know, you were tied up in a yard, and you were raped, all of this. And she said no. And by the way, when she said no, I was sitting with a bunch of therapists, and they all looked at each other knowingly like, well, she's screwed because she didn't go to therapy because you know, we think we have all the answers. But what she proceeded to say was the following. She said, you know, I didn't go to therapy because my parents traveled across the country to that place where I was abducted with me. As an adult, after it had happened, and they went down into that hole in the ground where I was raped and held for six years, and we spent a day walking through there, I was crying, and I realized, well, she went through trauma therapy with her parents. Her caregivers brought her into that. She, because we know that you know, trauma is much more accentuated when people don't talk about it in a family or they ignore it. So I do think, in this way, that so much of more of our we, we would be much less needed if families were more open to talking about some of the challenges that they experience.
1: I agree with you totally. And I think sometimes, you know, who says that one hour or two hours a week? You know, when I work with trauma, I try to make it very multi-layered. I encourage people to find a hobby, to join a walking group, a climbing group, to, to uh, do something creative, paint, sing, play music, to exercise to connect with, to, and I'll do all this with people oftentimes. And then to also do 12 step, to do one-to-one, but as a large package to do many, many things. And that if, if they want to fully heal, they need to do a, a multiply, multiplicity of things.
0: And in Soulful Journey, by the way, I think uh, Tian does do a really wonderful job of walking people through both the concepts and things that you can do to practically work on, on healing trauma. It's an interesting time for us, Dr. Dayton, because we've been dealing with and working with people with trauma for many, many years. We first started with addiction. Oh, we're dealing with addiction. And then, oh, we're dealing with trauma. And oh, we're dealing with relationship problems. No, we're dealing with trauma. And it does seem like we're at a time when that is beginning to slowly add up and people are getting it. You know, you folks don't know this, but we don't have a diagnosis for long-term early chronic trauma. We only have a diagnosis for what's called PTSD, which is more of a short-term, like, a, like 9-11 or a fire or an earthquake. We don't even have a diagnosis for people who grow up with extensive chronic trauma yet. That's how early this is, despite all the years we have of looking. That's how hard it is to get this issue to the surface.
1: You're so right. Relational trauma. People think of trauma as a one-time event, and they, they treat it as such. And it's, it's what you're talking about. It's this drip, 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 slow relational. And, you know, it, it's, it's, what, uh, it's not the thing that happened. It's how we experience the thing that happened.
0: Mm-hmm. That's where the family and who's listening to you and supporting you comes in, right?
1: Completely. People who've been sexually abused, for example, I can experience them as easier to treat than people who've been neglected, ignored.
0: That's interesting because I will say that so many clients I work with say, I wish I'd been hit because then I could point to the thing that happened to me. But the neglect, the withdrawing, the emotional abuse, that's so hard to predict.
1: Well, isolation is how, how you uh, punish people, right? Put them in isolation.
0: Uh, let me ask you this. If I was listening to the show and I was in a relationship that was struggling because we were in trauma, my spouse and I, what would, I, what would be some things that you would recommend that we could do? You know, a lot of the people who are listening are dealing with the trauma of betrayal or broken relationships, which I think probably brings up early trauma of broken relationships and, and loss and abandonment. But how do couples manage to get beyond and pick through what is mine? What is yours? What's from the past? What's from the present? It's a big chore. Well, it's a great question,
1: and I think I'd say, first of all, you'll never get through it all, so relax. Second of all, just to be aware that you both bring this in. Stop pointing fingers at the other person and start wondering about your own reaction and understand that you're probably co-creating conflict that things don't happen in a vacuum and just accept that and try not to go straight to blame and slamming. But he
0: had the affair. I didn't have the affair. Why should I look at anything in myself?
1: I know. I mean, it's so easy to point at the person who's acting out without saying, you know, dialing it back and saying, why, why did they feel need needed out to begin with? But if you want to get through and have a marriage, you're both going to have to self-examine. It's just the way it goes. You can't pin one person as the problem. It doesn't work that way. You'll just wind up either with a weak person to be married to or alone.
0: So here's, a, here's a, something I'm going to posit for you before we stop. Dr. Stan Tatkin said on this very show something like, um, what's important in the relationship is that when you're making your decisions about a relationship, they aren't about what's good for me or you. They're about what's good for the relationship. And that I have to, in a, in a highly functional relationship, I'm looking at that first. What is best for both of us? And maybe in the same way, when I'm looking at trauma, I can't say, well, or, or, or a trauma that's occurred to us, I can't just say, let's look at me or just look at you. I have to look at the whole interaction and everything that's happening between us. Because it isn't enough to say, you did this to me or I did this to you, is how do we do this to each other?
1: I had a client uh, send me a quote one time. And I find it bewildering. It was something like, um, I learned that I can't take care of me and the relationship, so I'm taking care of me. It was a quote like that, and I thought, that doesn't sound right to me. And I know it's supposed to sound right, but I I said to my husband, does this sound right to you as a quote? And he said, well, no, because if you're taking care of the relationship, you are taking care of yourself. You know, because we understood eventually that by, if we just said, I'm just taking care of me and I'm not taking, but that, that that they are, you are so intertwined. And, you know, one of the things that happens for the first many years of getting close to someone, I feel, was you lose a sense of self you become terrified because so much of your sense of self seems to be falling away as you become closer to another person. And we think of that the remedy to that is to hang tightly to the self. But I think it's the opposite. I think it's to let it go. Well, and and you'll find if if you let it go and don't worry about it so much, you come out the other side with a greater sense of self.
0: I was going to say, um, you know, we were debating, and we weren't debating. We were having a conversation about our shared views about prodependence and codependence earlier. This whole concept of keeping my partner in mind when I'm making decisions and keeping them in mind, you know, I think affairs, for example, are an act of taking my will out of the relationship and saying I'm going to do what's best for me and not for the relationship. And then the couple has to deal with the damage of all of that.
1: This was a perfect example, and I'm the one to say it too. Yes. And then you have to deal with all the damage of that. And and I think if you frame it that way, that when you have an affair or you or whatever, look, I'm just I'm taking it out of the relationship. I'm taking care of me because this feels good right now to me.
0: Uh, it's a turning away from the relationship. It is. Oftentimes with trauma survivors, it has to do with this is getting too close. This is getting too, I could be a band. A lot of my men start acting out when a wife has a child. All of a sudden, the extent of the dependencies, the, the, the profo- how profoundly connected and responsible I am, can leave people running in the other direction.
1: You nailed it. I mean, boy, did you just say a lot.
0: Dr. Dayton, how can people reach you? Listen, I admire and respect you. I always have. I think you do. An, you walk your own walk, and you do it with grace, and you're an extraordinary therapist. How can people find you if they want to look up your work?
1: Uh, on my website, tianndayton.com.
0: Okay. And can you spell that for us? dot com. You will find endless and useful information there. And if you ever have a chance to be in New York and do any work with Dr. Dayton, she is an amazing trainer and clinician. Folks, thank you for joining us. And thank you, Dr. Dayton. You are a blessing to all of us. You're pretty
1: brilliant yourself,
0: Dr. Weiss. Let's keep moving. Okay. Bye for now. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com.